Welcome to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the community outreach archivist at Emory University Library's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Courtney Chartier, Head of Research at Rose Library. Courtney, could you tell us what you do at the Rose Library? Absolutely. So I am the Head of Research Services. Um, which doesn't sound like anything. Uh, but what it is, is uh, I uh, manage the department that is the public-facing department of the Rose Library. And that includes our reference program, which is everything from people emailing us and asking questions or asking for copies to the people actually physically coming in our reading room to use materials. Uh, it includes our instruction program. Um, this year, even with the pandemic, we taught a about 125 individual class sessions at Emory and other universities. And it also includes our outreach program, um, which is a big range of, of activities from K through 12 instruction, uh, all kinds of academic, but also community-based programming and things like podcasts and other forms of social media. Gosh, I wish I could meet your outreach person. I bet you she's awesome. But uh, Well, I really wish she'd yeah. interview herself for this podcast <laughs> series, but we'll see how we, how we do on that one. Yeah, that's very meta if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I know other great outreach people and you guys could interview each other and I think that would be fab that that could work yeah so but as manager of the unit right like I I contribute to all three of those programs in different ways but as a participant um, you know teaching classes taking reference shifts um, responding to reference questions um, as well as attending outreach events, helping to plan them, doing whatever I can assistance-wise. But fundamentally, me being head of the unit means I'm a manager, right? I do administrative work. I manage our budget. I write our reports. Um, when strategic planning happens, you know, I, I'm negotiating what we're going to what we're going to see in there. Um, lots of little HR tasks, hiring students. I manage a whole team of grad students, um, those kinds of things. Courtney, could you walk us through the time in the reading room? Like, what does a reading room mean? A lot of people may not have, have walked in one before. I love working in the reading room. Um, I When I first got started as an archivist, I wasn't as interested in working with people. And part of that was because archives were so new, and I was really excited about the collection material. And I was like, oh, having to work with people means I'm taken away from these things. And um, really, though, I have found over a couple decades in the archives that my joy in life actually comes from connecting people with the materials. And the reading room is both the primary and most traditional place where that happens. We do a lot of programming to try and get people interested in the archives who can't come to our reading room. But the reading room is still where we see a lot of folks coming to us. And so the reading room right now is a physical space. Someday in the future, I hope it would also be a virtual space, but it's where people come to actually interact with our materials. Um, researchers come to us from all over the world. Um, sometimes they are quote unquote serious researchers. Mm, so somebody who might be writing 
uh, books, uh, you know, a monograph length project, they're doing a dissertation, um, they're working on a documentary film or creating an exhibit where they are, uh, wherever they work. And um, we have a lot of those kind of users, but we also have casual users. Um, we have and then everybody in between, right? And so I really encourage whenever I meet students, especially um, if they're in a program that's not in the humanities where they might not come to the archives in a class, uh, that they can just come in and like look at stuff that's interesting to them. I always say there is something for everybody at Rose Library and I consider it a challenge when somebody tells me like, oh, I'm not really interested in poetry. And I'm like, poetry is a drop in the bucket of what we have, man. I can find you something. And, uh, I actually had a student once, an undergraduate student, who was writing his thesis for the music department and um, music theory, not performance. And he was writing about uh, Western composers who had adopted tonalities from the gamelan scale, which the gamelan is a multi-piece instrument um, popular in, in Eastern cultures, especially like um, Bali. Mm-hmm. And it takes... Um, dozens of people to play it all at once. And Emory actually has a gamelan. It's one of a handful of universities in the West that has a full one. I mean, it takes an entire room to have this instrument out. Anyway, the student was telling me about his research and he's like, I'm sure you don't have anything for me. And I was like, challenge accepted. (laughs) And so um, I actually looked in um, our poetry library. Our enormous poetry library has tons and tons of zines in it and very, very small run poetry magazines. We call them little magazines. And, you know, stuff that was people made on a mimeograph machine and stuck a staple in like this is fine printing. But uh, I found this run of this experimental French zine from the 1970s um, that was about experimental poetry and experimental music. And I opened up the first issue, smack dab, right in the middle is an essay by John Cage, the composer, about his adoption of gamelan tonalities and like why he got interested in the gamelan. And Cage is like one of the 20th, late 20th century major composers, right? Yeah. So I sent it to this student and I was like, bam, You challenged me and I got it. (laughs) And the student was great. He actually invited me to his uh, honors thesis defense. And um, where we met, the defense was in the gamelan room at Emory. And he played Mm -hmm. various pieces of the instrument and danced. And then he had asked me to bring a couple pieces from the archives so that he could show them um, to the rest of the, to his actual committee. It was very cool. This one thing led, and he had to do the research in the reading room. Like, right. So he had to be in there. And it's so amazing the things that what you think you're going to find in the reading room and what you end up finding in a reading room could be totally two different things that, you know, and you're learning. The reading room is a space, right? It, our stuff doesn't circulate. If you want to come use it, you have to come in the reading room to use it. And we do a lot, though, to try and make that space really accessible um, to anyone. And um, we're actively right now making some changes to kind of make the space feel a little bit more inclusive because it is a formal space, right? It's kept very quiet. It's a It has walls. Um, it's uh, glass. I mean, you can see in it, but you can't just walk in and start doing stuff. And so uh, we as archivists, one of the things we really talk about intensely is customer service training and like when somebody walks up to the desk, the first thing you should say is hi and introduce yourself. Um, right. Just because we're a library doesn't mean we 
don't need to put people at ease. And what I really want is that people who, whether or not they're coming to Rose Library from Ireland and have planned a month-long trip and have every single duck in a row uh, and who have been doing archival research maybe for dozens of years or decades in the case of a lot of faculty who might visit us, um, they should feel, students who have never seen the archive should feel as comfortable. And the way you do that is through visual cues, right? Um, but we have this really beautiful formal space that we can't, like I can't tear the walls down, but I can put stuff up on the walls, right? So that's more how we approach that. But also uh, the other way you make people feel comfortable is by how you treat them, right? I mean, you've been in a, a million stores your whole life. And I remember when I was a teenager, suddenly, you know, stores in the mall went to having this policy of there was a greeter at the front door who said hi to you when you walked in. And they would say something like, hi, I'm Courtney. Let me know if you need anything. And Walmart has it, right? <laughs> yes, the Walmart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, even though sometimes that can be a little off-putting based on your mood, uh, when you come into a really formal space, having somebody say, hi, I'm Courtney, let me know if you need anything, yeah. is actually saying, hey, come talk to me. Like, if this doesn't make sense to you, if, you know, I, I've literally seen the elevator's door, doors open, kids step out, look, take one look around at all the marble walls we have and the dark paneled wood and get right back on the elevator. And I don't yeah. want that. I want yeah. them to be like, hey, what is this place? Where did I actually stumble upon? Because I guarantee no matter who that student is, I can find at least one thing in our collections that would interest them and excite them. Uh, whether it's, you know, a random zine that has a Gamelon essay in it, or it's a manuscript Bible, right? Um, one of the things I often pull for students is we have a manuscript Bible, a manuscript Torah, and a beautiful illuminated um, Quran. And one of the reasons I do that is not to be like ecumenical or whatever, whatever but uh, because most students are no Found a foundational religious text, right? Even if students don't have a context for the archives, they know what a Bible is. They know what a Torah is. They know what a Quran is. And so to be able to say, like, you know what this book is. You know this content. Let me just show you it in a form you might not be familiar with is, um, I think, a really good introduction to uh, rare books in general and, like, what that means. Um, the, the other thing we we get to do that I find joyful is, like, really expand someone's idea of what is rare um, or even like getting rid of the word rare, right? It's what has some sort of research or evidentiary value. And so if the 13th century manuscript Bible doesn't excite you, well, let's look at some amazing 20th century photographs you've never seen. Um, let's look at, uh, you know, planning material, like uh, one of the collections that um, is our collecting areas that's really important to me is our HIV activism. Like there's amazing material in that. And it's all very recent. It's very contemporary. Um, and, uh, you know, there's something you can find for anybody um, to get them excited and get them to think about not this idea of rare, you know, oh, it's rare, it has to be protected, but this idea of functional. This thing is being kept because it has a function. And that function may be like it's evidence of a life lived. 
it's evidence of how society worked. Sometimes it's evidence of wrongdoing. Um, and, it, and that's very true in a lot of government archives. But we definitely, um, because we collect so heavily civil rights material, we also collect material about white supremacists. And so to me, that's evidence of wrongdoing. And it very much needs to be preserved. Right. Um, yeah. You can't have one aspect of history because then you won't understand yeah. how one, another was formed. And, you know, uh, I mean, just in the in the context of talking about white supremacy, we all know the evidence of that. We all know how awful the segregationists were and that the government in southern states was heavily involved in that. Um that they were complicit in violence against African-Americans and other peoples of color in the South. But it's still kind of shocking sometimes to see it on paper yeah, and to see it in photographs. And I don't mean the photographs of like John Lewis getting hit on the head trying to cross the Selma Bridge, uh, the Pettus Bridge in Selma, although that is really important too. But, you know, when you look at Klan rally photos, we have this one photo that blows my mind every time. And it's a, a Klan event, I think in Stone, I think it's Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is right outside of Atlanta. And it's all these guys who are being initiated because they don't have their robes yet. Uh-huh. And so they're all kneeling to pray together, right? Which is its own level of irony. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys are wearing suits. It's the 40s. So, you know, men dress a little differently than they do now. Yeah. There's one guy in his farmer's overalls. But when you look... Every one of them is wearing their best shoes. That guy in the overalls, he's wearing his shiny Sunday, uncracked black leather lace-ups. Those men got dressed up for their clan initiation. Yeah. And so when I think about that photo, like we see those photos of extreme violence and they're very moving and they're very important. But that almost in a way obscures how every day this was for white people to be involved directly in the fabrication of white supremacist systems. And so that's one of the things that we do and can show students or anybody, right? It doesn't just have to be students. Uh Um, This evidence is so important. Yeah. And this evidence is important because it shows, I believe, it's not just a a throw-off. Like, white supremacy wasn't just something that people were doing just at that time because it was just something to do. Like, people, they knew better. <laughs> they There's there's evidence that shows it, but it's that, like you're saying, it's that evidence. Like, people, it, it's something like when you see yourself in the archive or when you see your ancestors or something that someone's doing in the archive, it gives you a better understanding. Well, and and I don't, you know, White supremacy is just on my mind because I've been writing about it lately. Mm-hmm. But like, there's there's so much beauty in the archives too. And um, like, I as much as we have white supremacist material, we also have tons of the evidence of black excellence in the face of white supremacy throughout several centuries of uh, U.S. history. And I love one of the things I really love about working in the reading room is when people like make that connection. Uh, to their joy. And I've seen people get up and dance 
Um, there was a, a woman once working on her dissertation where she literally, it, we always say in archives, there's no magic bullet. There's no one document that's like, this is your thesis. And undergraduate students frequently are like, no, I need to see the one document that that <laughs> explains this. And I'm like, yeah. that doesn't exist. Uh, but there, there literally was somebody who was doing her dissertation on a secret society. I can't remember the name of it. Some ridiculous thing. And she found this one document and literally got up and danced. And she was like, no, seriously, I've been looking for this because it was their um, like secret uh, 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 ceremony book. Okay. And um, uh, she wow. was like, I've been looking for this everywhere. It doesn't exist in any other collections of this group. I can't believe I found it. This is literally the linchpin document of my dissertation. I was like, oh, I guess there is a magic bullet every now and then for somebody. Um, but I, I mean, I love it when you see families come together around archival pieces. I, I, I even love it when people cry, although it makes me uncomfortable, but I've I've made several people cry throughout my career by talking to them, finding out what they're interested in. And sometimes it's I'm showing them things that are actually tangential to their primary research need. But if I make them cry, then I know I've done a really good job at work <laughs> because and I found something that's so special to them. And that's the thing, right? Each one of us has a totally different cry button in our heart. And like, I take it upon myself to find the individual one for everybody. That's what I want. What is your favorite item? So I will tell you the time, the only time I've cried since I've worked at Rose Library um, was uh, we have a copy. We have a first edition copy of David Walker's Appeal. And um, I, before I came to Emory, I actually had written an exhibit where the foundational document was David Walker's appeal. Um, Atlanta, um, the Atlanta student movement kicked off in October of 1960. One of the major events of that month was the arrest of Martin Luther King Jr. at um, the Magnolia Tea Room at Rich's Department Store. And uh, the students who organized that movement and really shamed King into being arrested with them um, had uh, put in the Atlanta newspapers, taken a full page out and put this um, Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, and they were called the Committee for the Committee for the Appeal for Human Rights. And it was sorry, it was Appeal for Human Rights, not Declaration. And they had based that on David Walker's appeal. And who is David Walker? What is that? What is David Walker's appeal? David Walker was a 19th century um, African-American newspaper publisher. And he he really is. I mean, when you talk about black excellence, like he was he very much in the in the tradition of Frederick Douglass understood that African-Americans controlling their own news was absolutely essential to. Um, protest movements into freedom, like the struggle Mm -hmm. for freedom overall, that black Americans needed access to information that was not filtered by white people. And there are a lot of 19th century black newspaper men, all of whom should be uh, celebrated for this work that they did. Um, Because when you're the publisher of a newspaper, your name's on the masthead. And there are examples of, you know, newspaper men um, being burned, their their presses being burned out, people being run out of town because they are the voice, right, of the black community. Mm-hmm. And they're frequently printing different versions of news, right? Whites, uh, this went one way in the white newspaper and the black newspaper is actually printing truth. So David Walker wrote this very amazing, fiery appeal. And um, it's the appeal to the colored citizens of of it's got about a 50 word title, but it's frequently Mm -hmm. known as David Walker's appeal. And it was really calling for 
um, African-Americans to like throw off their chains, right, in the South. And um, the so we got a first edition of it and I was really excited. I was like, oh my God, that's great. I've never seen a first edition, right? It's, it's long in the public domain, so you can find it online. Um, and uh, our curator at the time, our curator for African-American materials, he said, well, did you look at it? And I was like, no, I haven't looked yet. And he just handed it to me and it was in this, you know, very nice case and I opened it and uh, our copy belonged to W.E.B. Du Bois and it's signed and uh, he signed the title page and then it's also annotated. So it has his underlinings and his exclamation points alongside walkers because in the 19th century, man, did they print exclamation points when they wanted to, (laughs) to make a point very much after my heart. And uh, before I was at Rose, when actually I worked on this exhibit that was founded on Walker's work, um, I worked at Atlanta University Center, where which include the library there um, serves four uh, historically black colleges and universities, and one of them is Atlanta is Clark Atlanta University, which used to be Clark College and Atlanta University, and AU is where Du Bois taught when he lived in Atlanta, and. Um, one of the artifacts we have in the archives over there is his typewriter from when he actually worked. And I love, we also have his resignation letter, which is real fiery. And I like to think about him sitting there and typing on that typewriter, his his <laughs> resignation from AU. And I mean, it was special in and of itself to hold this first edition, right? Yeah. Um, and know that it survived so many years and probably going from many different hands but then to open it and find out it was Dr. Boise's and that he marked it up and that I can see that now. Yeah. Um, and not just think about reading Walker in that time, but reading Du Bois reading Walker, you know, in 70 years later and the parts that spoke to him. And then that being handed to that from Walker's generation to Du Bois's generation, and then from somebody like Du Bois to the teenagers who kicked off the Atlanta student movement and really shamed an entire city of adults into desegregating the largest city in the <laughs> South. Um, yeah. The, seeing those lines in history, uh, you know, people say a lot ancestors. People talk a lot about ancestors and I am white. I so you know I don't read those materials in the same way of feeling ancestors because I understand my ancestors were really the part of the problem, right? Like uh, the systemic racism and white supremacy, and um, but at the same time, being able to see those ancestral lines in activism is my favorite thing about history is seeing how people can learn from the past and build on it and build something even bigger and better. And knowing that, you know, what the past shaped, a lot of this that you're talking about, I was never taught. (laughs) My thoughts in history have basically been what I've read on my own or what I've learned in the archive. My knowledge of African-American history has expanded so much since I began to work in archives. It's it's amazing. I, I learn something new every day. Like I'd never heard of David Walker, never heard of, of what his impact was. In history classes, we're only taught 
what's in history books and everything that's in history books are not the whole story. It, it isn't the whole story. So you talked about working at um, AUC um, before coming to Emory, but tell me, what was your career path? What career path did you take to work in archives? Absolutely. So I got my first job in archives when I was 17. And I haven't left yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm from Austin, Texas. And um, my the the summer after I graduated high school, I needed a job. I was working at Pizza Hut. And um, I hated it because I had bought a brand new pair of white and green Adidas sneakers. Uh-huh. And after working a month at Pizza Hut, the whole white bottoms had turned orange from the amount of grease just in the air and on the floor. And I was like, this is not for me. Also, you know, I knew I was starting college and it was going to be hard for me to have a job off campus. And so um, my best friend at the time, her mom, worked at the Briscoe, what is now known as the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas. And she was head of processing. Sarah, uh, was her name Sarah Clark? And she said... Um, Hey, do you need a part-time job? We need, we're hiring pages for the summer. And a page, you know, I, you sit in the reading room, at least this was the system there. You sit in the reading room and when somebody needs a book or somebody needs a box, you go and you get it, you page it. And then you do all the reshelving. Um, if things need to go to like the photocopy guy, you take them down there. If things need to go to the archivist to get fixed, you take it there. You're just kind of taking things back and forth. And, um, but I got really into it. I got really excited about the archives. And um, after that, once I started college, uh, I kept working there as a page and eventually shifted to working on a grant project as a processing assistant. And um, I was working on the papers of um, Governor Ann Richards. She was the second female governor of Texas, um, but the first one doesn't count because she was a coattail her husband got indicted forced out of office and she just kind of took his job and um they were very very corrupt very corrupt people so we count Anne as our first female governor (laughs) she was also a real standout democrat um in in a long line of republicans um very funny woman. But I started working on her papers as a processing assistant. And the woman who was managing that project um, ended up leaving before her contract was over because she found a permanent position someplace else. And because I'd been working on the project a couple years and there wasn't a lot left, um, the head of archives was like, hey, do you just want to finish processing Governor Ann Richards' papers? And I was like, 20. And I didn't know anything. Yeah. And I was like, of course I do. <laughs> because it was a, they could give me a part-time position. So 20 hours a week, which at UT at Texas meant I not only got uh, staff health insurance, but I got a staff parking permit, which Ooh. was worth its weight in gold. So I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to stay and do this. It's the perks of the job. Yeah, perks of the job. And so uh, I left uh I did my four years at UT, graduated with a a bachelor's in American studies. So I was very already into very interdisciplinary um, cultural history. And um, I had a lot of great professors at um, Texas. And um, I was really, really interested in Southern history, especially civil rights. And so I ended up going to the University of Mississippi and got a master's degree in Southern studies at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. 
And I was lucky enough to TA for um, a professor, Dr. Ted Ownby, who taught a lot of civil rights courses. I also had him as a professor. Um, but I also worked at the archives at Ole Miss because I'd already had so many jobs in the archives. I literally walked in and got a job and started the next day, my first day of work, September 11th, 2001. Uh, so very memorable first day at the archives. But at the archives there, I continued doing reference work. I or I started doing more reference work and I continued processing. I actually processed a big section of the chancellor's papers um, from Ole Miss, which was really, really interesting because pre-integration, the chancellor's office had all these files on students who were passing. So like they knew there were students at Ole Miss that weren't white and they were keeping an eye on them. It was very oh, interesting. So yes. like my interest in general in like I've always had this kind of interest in the the play of race. And when I say play, I mean like both the interaction, but also the fact that it is a performance, 100%. And really, Ted's teaching while I was at um, Ole Miss, we talked a lot about whiteness and how, and Southernness and how that is created. And you create it through things like, yeah, Jim Crow laws, but you also create it through things like popular music, like advertising that tells you this is what a black person's like. And so I, as a white person, I'm the opposite, right? And especially in the South, that's really wrapped up in gender because there's this myth of the white Southern woman. And some of what supports that myth is that white Southern women are different from black women and need to be protected from black men, right? Like it's very much this, this binary. And so it's a way to keep black folks in place and it's a way to keep your women folks in place. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I worked at the archives, and then when I graduated, I initially, my plan had been, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to teach. And I realized when I was in graduate school that I didn't want to get a PhD and I didn't want to teach. Number one, PhDs are hard. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> Teaching is hard. It's a lot of work, and you got to put up with these these terrible little kids out here. And so I went back to Austin. I moved back, um, stayed with my folks, and was like, you know what? I'm going to get, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to graduate school and get my there, uh, my master's in information studies, uh, because the University of Texas has the iSchool and it has specifically a track in what they call archival enterprise. And that program at the time was led by David Gracie, um, who uh, was a very influential archivist for many, many years. Um, he just passed this year in 2020. And uh, so I went back to work at the Briscoe Center. I worked two part-time jobs, um, which equaled 40 hours a week. Wow. And I did everything. Mm -hmm. I drove the van to our offsite storage. I scanned things, you know, just slapping them on a, a scanner. Um, I worked, I did metadata for our instance of DSpace, which is a um, home uh, uh, open source um, storage for uh, digitized objects. Um, I worked the reference desk. I worked the reception desk. I did ev literally everything. Um, which was really great experience. So by the time I actually graduated, I felt like I could say, I'm qualified for a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I, I took an extra, a couple extra semesters in, in graduate school on that second degree. It took me a lot longer to graduate than I like to admit, but I'm glad it, it did because a few months after I graduated, 
I saw a job posting for Atlanta. I had interviewed first for some jobs in Austin, but it really, the truth was like, there's too much competition there. There, It was such an expensive city. I knew my parents were going to leave as soon as they retired. So I was just like, forget about it. Let's go someplace else. So I saw this listing for Atlanta and I was like, I could probably hang with Atlanta. Like I'm definitely a city girl. My years in Mississippi scared me. Um, (laughs) So I, the job was at the Woodruff Library at Atlanta University Center. I didn't know anything about Atlanta University Centers, but I knew a little bit about HBCUs because there's there's one in Austin, Houston Tillotson, and I had interviewed for a position there. Uh And so... um, I uh, uh, came to Atlanta for my interview, loved the library, and what I really loved about it was the job was um, supervised by a consultant. And as soon as I met that woman, whose name was Brenda Banks, also a very influential, well-known archivist, as soon as I met Brenda, I was like, I'll work for this woman for anything. Like, I'll do what she tells me. I'm into it. But I'm burying the lead because the job was to process the papers of Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, yeah. just (laughs) Morehouse College had recently acquired um, through the city of Atlanta uh, a – had recently purchased um, from Sotheby's Auction House a collection of Martin of Dr. King's papers for $32 million. And they the city bought it and then deposited it at Morehouse College. And they had already hired one archivist and a rare book cataloger to work on the collection and they needed a second processing archivist because even though it's not a massive collection or it's a decent sized collection, it's like a hundred and something linear feet. um, They were going to do item level processing, which means every single piece of paper in that collection would be accounted for. We don't normally do that because it takes a lot of time and it's not always the most useful thing for researchers. Uh, But with a collection of that stature, they wanted like a really accurate down to the detail um, description of everything that was in there. So I got offered the job. I said, sure, let's do this. Uh, I drove out of Austin on a Friday, started work in Atlanta the next Monday. Cause I was 27. I didn't own anything except a cat. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I've been in Atlanta ever since. Uh, I absolutely love it here. Um, I hope to never leave. I hope this is my town till I die. But honestly, having the educational experience I did of really being interested in the civil rights movement, um, I had I I had a lot of opportunities to write too when I was at Mississippi. I was a research assistant on the Mississippi Encyclopedia, um, which I have a few articles in. Um, but I'd had the opportunity also while doing my work in the archives to all through my uh, um, undergraduate and graduate programs to do a lot of research in the archives. So I was a user too and uh, really cared about especially civil rights movement history. And I was at AUC for something like eight years. We did the King mm-hmm. Papers and then I worked on another project for an organization's records called the Voter Education Project, which is a voting rights organization here in Atlanta. And um, the longest, uh, I think, sitting executive director was John Lewis. So I had the opportunity to go from Dr. King's papers to Congressman Lewis's papers, who was my congressman up until his passing this year. It's been a heck of a year. Uh, then was at AUC a few more years before I came over to Emory. And one of the reasons I came over was because at AUC, I got a lot of experience doing every job because everybody there does a little bit of everything. And really, it was getting clearer to me that what I wanted to be doing was 
working with the public. And here, my job is really focused on the public. And I care very much that collections are preserved properly, that they're processed correctly, that things are cataloged in a way that everybody can find it. Um, but I'm not that great at those things. And what really makes me excited is working with people in their need for those things. And so then was it a a hard transition to go from being like behind the scenes and processing to being in front with people and having more of a say on how they access reference? Not so much. And part of that is because, like I said, at AUC, I was working reference all the time. But I also, because I was working on the King Papers, had to do a lot of um, uh, show and tell. Uh Right. So I had to get used to really fast to get used to talking to people about collections without any preparation, Uh, because sometimes people would just show up. And um, I remember I think it was my third day on the job, because when I was at Texas, we were very casual flip flops and cutoffs still, you know, (laughs) and um, I mean, the professional staff dressed a little bit nicer than that, but there was still, you were, could wear jeans to work and it was, it was fine. AUC is not like that. And I remember, I think it was my third day, the CEO and library director, who's an amazing woman, Loretta Parham, she pulled me aside and she just, she just kind of gestured at what I had on, which wasn't bad. I was wearing like capris and a t-shirt though. And she said, at this job, you need to be presentation ready at all times. And that sentence has stuck with me. That was in 2007 for 13 years. Um, And I was like, I take your point. And I took my first little check down to Target and I bought a pair of brown slacks and a pair of black slacks and cardigans in different color, just mix and match, you know, so I'd have at least five decent outfits. And I called my mom and I said, I need you to, that one skirt pattern I like, I need you to make me about 15 in prime, you know, solid colors, a couple tasteful patterns, because I didn't have the clothes to be the king, one of the Martin Luther King archivists. And I just remember one time Morehouse College called and said, hey, we've got a VIP. Can we bring him over to seeing the King Papers? And I was like, yeah, sure. Come on over. And it was Tommy Hilfiger. And like yeah. this whole group, we, Lolita, I, um, one time we entertained the entire, an entire delegation from the UN, including the secretary general Ban Ki-moon. Like that's, I, some, yeah. that's like a fancy visit. I, I needed never, to have, you got to have good shoes for that. Right, right. I mean, I've never just like, that has been one of the things that has struck me here, especially at Emory is that like, who comes through there is like this week's guest star is, and it's oh, yeah. someone that you're like, Oh, wait a minute. And you have to be ready. Like that is such good advice. What other tips would you give aspiring archivists? Well, At some point, you need to find your comfort zone with strangers. And I realize that's hard. Um, I am actually more introverted than I seem. Uh, You know, I sometimes have to flip on the switch and do kind of public Courtney. And, but it all comes from the same place of, I want people to connect with our stuff. And I want them to understand why this work is important. And so that's where I come from. And that's catered for different people, right? The way I act when the UN comes is really different from how I'm going to approach a freshman. Except that the starting place for me is still 
there's a way for me to get you excited about this. And it takes a lot of practice. Um, I got it. I got a lot of home training is how I like to say, uh, (laughs) because my parents are both career customer service people. My dad is a retired police officer and my mom managed a Joanne's Fabrics. And my dad definitely approached police work as customer service work. He always said to me, when you're a cop and you're interacting with somebody, you have to remember that you are talking to them on what might is probably the worst day of their life and you need to act that way. And my mom, you know, I don't, I don't know if y'all had this at your house, a phone voice. Oh, yes, yes. Where, yeah. where mama might be yelling at you for breaking a glass or eating dirt or whatever foolishness. But if that phone rings, it's, hello, this is Connie. Yes, like, yes that, the code switch oh, of yeah. parenting versus, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lolita, why are you doing that to, hello? Uh, yeah, see, I, I didn't ever want that voice. So I was a good little girl, and Brenda Rowe can attest to that, um, because I just didn't want, you know, I was like, oh, I don't like that voice. Oh, no, I my phone voice, I still have one. I've heard had people at work be like, what did you just do? And I'm like, you gotta bring that phone voice out. Right, But exactly. uh, So, you know, I just, I grew up with parents who really emphasized how you act. And then I went to graduate school under David Gracie, who was like very much a part of being an archivist is being an advocate for the entire profession. And then I learned also from Brenda Banks, who always, um, she she is a very notable archivist. And mm-hmm. um, she built the, the State Archives building here in Georgia, which is gorgeous, which is an award-winning um, uh, design. She was deputy um, archivist for Georgia for many years, and then she worked as a consultant. Uh, had her own consulting company. And Brenda's advice, she always told me, and I'm so, I never follow her advice on this. She always said, walk softly and carry a big stick. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, Brenda, you have the right personality for that. Like I pop (laughs) off at everything. But it wasn't until a few years in that I realized, well, Brenda didn't have a choice. Brenda was a black woman trying to be very successful in a white profession. She didn't have the white luxury of me popping off. Right. (laughs) And so, but I I take the lesson in the same way as those lessons from my parents and those lessons from David, which is like a part of this job. It's not about me making myself into a different person. It's about me being mindful that people don't know about archives and people come to the archives for all kinds of different reasons and with all kinds of different backgrounds me as the archivist, it's my responsibility to be mindful of that and make sure everybody feels like they have a place at the archives. And so if I come to it like that, I come to it as being approachable. I come to it as being professional. I come to it as being gentle and mindful of everybody's situation. Then I'm doing a good job. So then I have two questions for you um, that kind of go into this. The first one is, what is or what's a common misconception about your job as an archivist? And also, why are archives important? Well, I, I can answer that with one anecdote, I think. Um, I, in addition to working at Rose, I also teach in the graduate school at Georgia State University. Um, I they have There's a public history uh, and historic preservation program, and I teach the archives class. And I actually had a student this year that the first paper she turned in started with, so far this semester, 
I have learned that archives are not dusty old places. So one, <laughs> there's a misconception. Uh, and and then she con- and then she continued to say, sentence two, archives are founded in white supremacy. And I was like, my job here is done. I don't Mission need to teach this young woman anything else. She is perfect. She can go out into the world and and bring joy and light to others. Um, so misconception. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dusty old places, misconception, archives are neutral in some way. Uh, archivists haven't made terrible uh, judgment calls for centuries about what gets to be kept and who gets to be a part of the record. Um, but also, uh, why are archives important? Well, I mean, archives are founded in white supremacy, yes, but that's all where all the evidence is. Right? That's where you're going right? to find the evidence. Bodies are buried in archives. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it's not necessarily buried, Lolita, because we know. Like, we're the staff. Yeah. Come ask me. I, I can't put everything online, but I can tell you where it is and what it's about. Um, I had this conversation about things being discovered in archives. They're yeah. there. They're just, they're there. They're just, yeah. use a finding aid. Or, Absolutely. Like said, talk to your local archivist. Yeah. And, I, and right now, we're really, uh, our profession... Um, because my other hat, my third hat, is I'm vice current vice president of Society of American Archivists, which means in August of 2021, I'll become the president. And like our profession is having a lot of growing pains right now, just like a lot of other institutions and professions in the country. And part of that is is like a certain part of our uh, of professional archivists have been very willing in the last. 10 years heavily, but really since 1970, to talk about archivists and and white supremacy. Um, Not in that language, but there was a willingness, at least since the 70s, to talk about archives and power. And that archives and archivists have a lot of power. Uh, We have a lot of power to keep people out, but we also have a lot of power to, to bring people in. And what gets me really excited about archives now is not so much archives being like, oh, okay, well, then I guess we need to collect different stuff. But archivists getting out of their building and finding opportunities to collaborate with communities that already have done that work. They don't necessarily need the archives, but they could benefit from a collaboration just as the archives could benefit with a collaboration with the communities that surround them. Collaboration is important. Yeah. And I mean community as a big umbrella. Like one yeah. community might be students that go to your university. One community might be the church down the street. One community, in fact, that I've worked with the last couple of years and wish I could do a lot more with is the HIV activist community in Atlanta, which is enormous mm-hmm. and very hardworking and in need a lot of a lot of attention, honestly. Like people should be throwing money at them. Um, Atlanta still has a monster HIV transmission rate, and that's terrible in 2020 because we're also where the CDC is and a huge public health organization like uh, at Emory University. Um, So there are opportunities for the archives to collaborate with community that is not about materials. It's not about stuff. It is about the fact that archives, no matter how well-funded they are, position themselves as experts of some kind. You are reminding me of um, uh, last week's episode of Community Conversations podcast, mm-hmm. where we interviewed um, Dr. Jesse Peel, and he talks about the HIV crisis in Atlanta in the 80s and 90s, and 
we have his collections at Rose, and he was talking about the books that he had with the names and talking about funerals, and it just put it into another light. Like I, I like you know, it's devastating, but the fact that a generation of men were lost, mm-hmm. a generation of people, and it's just heartbreaking that something could have been done sooner, but it was not. And when you look in the archives and you see the response of the government and the response of um, of the medical institutions and how people finally begin to like rally to understand that this is a, an epidemic that needs to be addressed, it's very powerful and it's very meaning. I mean, as a great Lynn Manuel says, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, right? Um, if you're not in the narrative, if your information is not in a narrative, who is telling your story? Do you exist, right? Does your story exist? Does that part of history exist? And so that's been one thing that I think um, has been very prominent that I've seen more and more as I, as I delve into archives, because I've only been in archives for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience. Well, and I think it's really interesting, like when you bring up something like HIV, where you do have, uh, when we talk about building activism on a lineage, there's a whole generation of teachers that got lost, specifically for gay men in this country. Not There are many other communities that were ravaged by HIV um, and continue to be because now... Uh, it's not necessarily men, gay men. It is men who sleep with men, which is the public health term, because it's not necessarily men that identify as gay. But um, the horror there, I mean, that's an entire generation where uh, the lessons weren't handed down and the work wasn't handed down in the same way because so many people died. And Atlanta, um, you know, not as well known as the epidemic in San Francisco or the epidemic in New York, um, Atlanta got hit really hard uh, by HIV. And um, there are doctors at Emory still who were in residency when that happened and, you know, would go from working at our community hospital to um, the university hospital to the Midtown hospital. And uh, I've heard these stories about like, you know, the, um, the public hospital uh, is where you had um, drug users and specifically black men dying in the wards. The university hospital was where they did research. So you had people who were like hemophiliacs, people who were coming in for trials and stuff like that. And then the the ritzier hospital is where you had the wealthier white men. And so you actually had three distinct populations of people dying in different buildings in the city of the same disease. And that's so weird. And like that story is so bizarre. And the activism these days is a little bit different because with prep, with the uh, cocktail, there is, uh, that's why we say living with now. People don't have HIV, they are living with. And a lot of the issues now being addressed, which can have been being addressed for a long time are, you know, housing, sex work, uh, access to medical care, like uh, transportation. How do you get to a doctor if you need, you know, uh, homelessness? Like a lot of these, it, it, as well as still um, uh, destigmatization and decriminalization. Um, those are also bit major movements. Um, and so, like for me, HIV now is my 
like civil rights issue. Well, it's a human rights issue, right? All civil rights is human rights. But HIV is now like this issue that I'm really passionate about. Um, Archives are important because they can be amazing sites for social justice work. They're amazing sites for human rights work. And they're also amazing sites for community building work. And you can't have effective social justice and human rights movements without effective community building. And archives should be in the forefront of cultural institutions that do this work. It is up to the archivists to make that happen. And uh, like, that's my hope and my dream for our profession, but also for what we do at the Rose Library. We're still going to teach students. We're still going to, you know, get faculty members from University of Liverpool coming over to write their next book. We're still going to have documentaries come through. We're still going to occasionally have fancy, you know, Claudia Rankin came last year, Nikki Giovanni. I still want those things to happen, but I also want us to be making our community better. And I, I fully, I am not religious, but I absorb Dr. a lot of Dr. King. And I do really believe in his concept of the beloved community or the world church. Like ever people, I don't live in the, in the neighborhood, which has the highest rate of HIV transition in Atlanta, right? Those people are my neighbors and it's still my responsibility and my opportunity to be neighborly to those people. And like, when I think about Dr. King, that's actually what I think about. And when I think about this city, the city of Atlanta, that's also what I think about. Our amazing history, we can make it so much more, but we have to learn the lessons of the people, the lineage that came before us. So I I forgot to mention this completely, but I also processed the papers of one Tupac Shakur. Really? At what institution did you do that at? Uh, That was while I was at Atlanta University Center. That came after I had processed Dr. King and then a heavily organization run by John Lewis. Uh, And the next project they gave me was Tupac. And um, I graduated high school in 1997. I had the Rolling Stone cover from when he died up in my bedroom. Um, I absolutely love him. I love almost every movie he made, even the terrible ones, uh, like the ones that star him and Mickey Rourke. I mean, guys. Uh, and yeah. I, 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 it was a dream. Um, I have to say that meeting his family, meeting his cousins who are a part of his, um, the group he had, the outlaws, uh, everybody is so nice in that family. Um, they, they had a foundation here in Atlanta, not anymore, but when he was a teen, he came down to Atlanta all the time to stay with, um, friends of the family. His, one of his mentors, who's a professor still at Georgia State University, um, Akinyele Umoja, and, uh, he actually would, um, hand out final call at the AU Center Schools as a teen. And he had started a group called, um, I think it was the New African Panthers. And so he had this, like, he was very woke, very politically woke at a very young age, but I, you know, his mom is responsible for that. I I didn't realize his impact or that, you know, that connection to Atlanta. He was arrested in Atlanta. Um, He shot a cop here. So there's also that uh, uh, um, off-duty police officer, I believe, who was heavily harassing him. And um, uh, he did not go to jail for that crime. But I, it was interesting. It's always been interesting to um, think about figures like King, like Tupac. I, I, 
And I have a lot of empathy for people who have stratastrophic fame. Knowing somebody for what they're famous for, you don't really know the person, right? And we know a lot about Dr. King's personal life, which does not match up with his public persona. Tupac also had an intellectual life that does not fully match up with his public persona. And I think it's kind of a shame that his greatest hit is a banger and not one of his more politically woke songs, like political songs. Mm-hmm. Um, California, it's an amazing song. But yeah, uh, yeah. I think my my actual favorite song, and I, I am a feminist, this is my famous, I'm a feminist butt statement. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but my all-time favorite song is I Get Around by Tupac Shakur. <laughs> and that is a filthy, terrible song that sort of condones date rape. Oh man. I guess it doesn't uh, sort of. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. It condones sexual assault against women. And I uh uh and yet I love that song. As we contain multitudes, Lolita. Yeah. All of us. I understand. It's like a whole thing. It's like baby, it's cold outside, and you're like, oh you that know, poor song. Oh, that song has just been I mean, Oh, it did not yeah. age well. It did not, it did not. And you know what the thing about it too is like what you hear as a kid, a teenager, an adult uh someone like different phases of your life it changes your perceptions change as as a person because you're growing as a person and things that you're like like um like i used to like revenge of the nerds and i'm like some of this stuff is a little problematic that they um like as you get older and you get uh you know aware of of like wait a minute that that thing that passed and and things aren't that far gone like you know yeah. it's not like things from like 50 60 years ago sometimes you look at old sitcoms from um 10 years ago and you're like Ooh. oh yeah so no uh, revenge of the nerds is a is a great example of a movie that i hope would never be made today um the the main female character is raped in the end by the main male character and it is portrayed as so good that she's okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you decides just, to be his girlfriend. Like yeah. that is horrific. It's like that's not that's not how any of that works. And so it's just like I hope because I know that we are the uh, things swing back and forth. And I, I hope that that's where it was and that's where it will never be again. Absolutely. You know, um, but yeah, like just kind of like uh that whole idea of like this is wrong and it's yeah yeah, but we but we have that in our in our pop culture we have that in in reference to things and it shapes who we are but we have that choice Mm -hmm. to be different well and just to take this back to archives a little bit like I one of the great things about seeing Tupac's manuscripts the man wrote all the time Uh We forget he was incredibly young when he died and had been in like eight movies, released a ton of albums, done two years almost in prison, written a book of poetry. Um, He did a lot in a very short amount of time. Uh, He was very prolific. And he kept these huge notebooks and they were full of they were full of song lyrics, as you'd expect. But they were also full of like his ideas for commercials. Um, like when he had a new album coming out, what the radio commercials should sound like, what a TV commercial should look like, uh, t-shirt designs. Um, he, there are some, there's one that has all these boxer short designs he wanted to do. Um, 
business. I mean, he uh, screenplays, short stories. He was writing all the time. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is his business acumen. Mm-hmm. Like he actually really understood that he was selling a product called Tupac Shakur. And this and, is all in the archives. This is And all, that's all in the archives. And yeah. that the awareness of that, like this man was operating at a pretty high level. Mm-hmm. And that's why as a fan, uh, some of the language about women really disappoints me. He also wrote, you know, a beautiful song, Dear Mama, about his mother. And it's hard sometimes to, and he, and I mean, they had a lot of struggles. I'm glad they came out of it. I'm glad she went on to have a really rich, fulfilling life. But it's hard sometimes mm-hmm. to square up that version with the version in I Get Around that's like, well, if I can't have it, silly rabbit, why'd you sweat me? And goes on mm-hmm. to complain that there are real G's doing time because a girl pretended she liked him and then changed her mind at the last second. Like, no, sir. BS. Like, yeah. I, I yeah. call BS on that. And, yeah. and but the good, that's one thing about the archives that can be really interesting is seeing the breadth of a person and being reminded, like, it, I have heroes. We all have heroes. I've talked about Brenda Banks. I've talked about David Gracie, Sarah Clark, who really um, at the Briscoe Center, who gave me my first job in the archives, who pushed the Briscoe Center to collect social and environmental justice, right? Mm-hmm. That was another thing that pushed me into the archives was seeing that she actually used her job to make a difference. Wow. I was, that really inspired wow. me. Yeah. And so yeah. I have heroes, but I don't pretend that any one of those three people were perfect. That they didn't have rank, terrible moments, just like I do. Yeah, because we're people. We're we're not perfect, you know. And the fact that in archives, imperfections are important. Absolutely, they're so important. But but also what you're what you're talking about too is you're moving archives outside of just being in a building. Archives, mm-hmm. although they are the collection of things that are more than rare, more than historic, they're still influencing us today. They're still impacting and can impact how we deal with social justice, how we deal with environmentalism, and how we deal with the things that are affecting our lives today. Archives yeah. have a say in that. How you deal with yourself. Archives let us see all the dimensions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those dimensions have been lost, right? We can't save everything. I'm here to say that for sure. Yeah. Uh, But the reason we make them accessible is so that everybody can see the dimensions. And sometimes you don't need nuance to convince you of something. uh, But you do need nuance to have full empathy and care. And understanding. Uh And I'm always going to think that's important. Behind the Archives is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, 
Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Courtney Chartier and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Gabrielle Dudley about her work as the instruction archivist for Rose Library. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.